0: And that's kind of what we're here today is we want to to help understand in these first three weeks of the new year. We're going to talk about who is welcome here, what it means to be welcome in the church. Uh, We want to help folks find their place here in Christ's church. And it's important that we we are able to do that because we're actually commanded in Scripture. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. And he says this. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. The church should be about welcoming people. Now, that may seem um, like a a no-brainer to most of us. We're like, duh, yeah. But the thing is, is if we are not intentionally welcoming, if we are not intentionally reaching out to others and saying, you can belong here in Christ, we are kind of, by default, excluding them. If we are not intentionally creating an atmosphere where everyone feels welcome, we are unintentionally creating an atmosphere where many people will feel unwelcome or unwanted. And so the next three weeks, we're going to talk about what kind of people we want in our church, who is welcome here. And I'm going to start with the most obvious, everybody who's perfect, right? That's, those are the people we want first and foremost. And so everybody who's perfect, just raise your hand and you're Ashton, you're not perfect. You, You weren't even raising your hands, were you? You were just stretching. And I nailed you just like that. Um, but but so so what kind of people do we want here? And I'm going to start with this statement first, because first and foremost, we need to understand in God's word that sinners are welcome here. Sinners are welcome here. And a lot of us, we're going to look at a phrase like that and we're going to look around the room and go, oh, yeah, there's a few of those here today. I'm so glad they made it but i'm going to talk to you a little bit and address something about what god's word has to say about us. so 1 corinthians chapter 6 verses 8 through 11. if you have your bible, i encourage you to open it up. if you need a bible, uh you could slip back real quiet or real quick and grab one off the back. if you've got your phone in the bible app, you'll find today's event or you can open up god's word there in the bible app. and so here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, and we've been through the whole letter of Paul to the church in Corinth uh, previously, and all the scripture will eventually be on the screen, so don't worry, you won't miss anything if you don't have something open, but, but Paul writes to this church, and this church has issues. Now, we would say, yeah, don't a couple of churches have issues, right? I mean, not every church does. No, every church does, but this church had serious issues. They had people who were coming to partake of the Lord's Supper together, and they were getting drunk before everybody arrived and drinking up all the wine that was meant to be used for the Lord's table uh, and enjoying their time before, before the poor people came. Uh, we, we had instances where, where men were being intimate with their stepmothers, and like, this is acceptable, right? And, and no, not so much. This is not cool. We, we have people who are dividing the church according to different leaders. We find out here in the beginning of chapter six that there are people who are actually suing other believers for the sake of, of what they felt were grievances. And, and he doesn't judge whether the grievances are real, but he begins to speak and tell them, listen, you shouldn't be taking each other to court the christian community is such that that we should be able to work out life together we should be able to figure things out with having to without having to resort to going to evil outsiders and allowing pagans to take power over the people of the church and so here in chapter six, verses eight and 11, he starts to talk about what kind of people make up the church and why it is we ought to be able to have grace and figure out things amongst ourselves. So I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll come back and go through it bit by bit. So first Corinthians chapter six, verses eight through 11. Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do this to brothers and sisters Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now you might read this passage and go, huh? how do we get that sinners are welcome? Don't worry, we'll get there. Because this is so critical for us to understand about the nature of who we are and were and about the power of God and what he can do in and amongst us. So Paul begins to talk about how we, or this church, and and even today in the modern church, we struggle to treat one another rightly. We struggle to genuinely care for one another. We struggle to genuinely open ourselves up and welcome one another as we've been commanded to do in Romans fifteen seven. Instead, we find ourselves doing wrong and cheating one another. We do this to our own brothers and sisters. And you might go, well, that doesn't happen. And, and as a pastor, I can tell you it does. Well, that wouldn't happen here. And I'll tell you, I think it has here. And we're not talking about necessarily regarding money, but certainly regarding things like relationship, regarding how you give of yourself, how you welcome one another. You see, we have all been given spiritual gifts according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we have a responsibility to use what God has given to us to build up the church around us. And yet we steal and cheat and wrong one another by sitting quietly and doing nothing. We steal and cheat and wrong one another by not really being concerned with one another's lives. Now, I I realize that this is a, a difficult thing, but how many of us really give of ourselves instead of holding things back and keeping the truth of who we are and how we love from others? And so Paul is really addressing this selfishness in the church This inability to see beyond the end of our nose and to be consumed with ourselves. And he says, listen, you do this. And don't you know, verse 9, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? So he says we, we struggle with lying and cheating and stealing and defrauding one another. And doing one another wrong in relationships and not genuinely welcoming one another. And don't you understand that people who do that kind of stuff habitually, they don't genuinely belong to the kingdom of God? I mean, that's what he's saying there, that first phrase. Don't you know? And, and by saying, don't you know, he's really saying, I know you know. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? The people who do the things they know to be wrong and do them with rejoicing, those kinds of people aren't genuine believers. And here's the list of folks that he says, if you're in this lifestyle, continuing in it, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. Here's what he says. Do not be deceived. Now he has to start with that because what does some of us like to do? We like to deceive ourselves, don't we? We like to look in the mirror and convince ourselves that everything's okay. I have this besetting sin that I actually can find on this list, and I refuse to give it up. But it's okay. No big deal. Everything's fine. God loves me. Well, God does love you, but he loves you too much to leave you as you were. And he says, listen, if you really want to know me and walk with me and see me for eternity, you must understand these kind of people can't come into my presence. And this is what the Apostle Paul is speaking. And that's what he's telling us. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, we read this list, and a lot of us, we just imagine we're watching CNN or something, right? Or we're watching C-SPAN. And these, we know these kind of people. They all live in Washington, D.C., or maybe Harrisburg, right? We, we see them, and we go, those are the evil people. They, you know, the, These are the Epsteins of the world. These are the people that we look down on, and these are the people that we shame And as we read through this list, we we can really compartmentalize and say, that's them. Now let's go through the list a little bit. And Most of you, you've been through these, you understand when the Apostle Paul has a number of these lists like this in his letters to the churches. These are called vice lists. And you know why they're called vice lists? Because all of these are vices. And by vice, we mean sinful habits that if you continue in them, will reveal that you are not genuinely a member of the family of Christ. You are not genuinely a believer if you continue in these. Your continuing disobedience in these areas shows the world you don't believe what you say you believe. So don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people. Now, that phrase, a lot of us think of someone out there. We think of people who do specific things. But what's interesting about sexual immorality is that Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he talks about it and he says, "You you were taught don't commit adultery. And we all go, amen, amen. Don't do that. That's wrong. You were taught don't commit adultery, but I tell you. And then he goes on to tell us the actual application of that is whatever you do in your heart or your mind is the same as if you've done it physically. And so when we look at this condemnation of sexual immorality, and then we think about our own hearts and minds, no hands please, but how many of us could be told we're guilty of this? If we look not at the actions of our bodies, but instead how Jesus would tell us to look at ourselves in our hearts and minds, and how we're imagining things about other people, about things we see on the internet, the the things that we are consuming... Don't be deceived. Someone who continues in that lifestyle is not saved. He says, idolaters. Now, we, we wonder what is idolatry. Idolatry can take so many different forms. But it is specifically when we either make God a thing or turn a thing into God. And so if we take and we worship a God of our own creation, we read the Bible and say, I like the nice attributes of God, but I don't like the mean ones. And so I'm going to make a God that I really like. I'll color out the things that I don't appreciate. Wrath, none of that. You know, the God I want to worship is going to look really loving and really kind. He might be like a little puppy, except he won't pee anywhere. And he's just going to be, you know, my God is going to be faithful and affectionate. And my God's going to love to see me. And that's what my God is like. Except that's not the God of creation, is it? Because the God of creation is also a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God of justice. A God of holiness. And so there's more to him. But if we create a God that we like, we are essentially idolaters. Or if we take a thing and we turn it into a God. When I got my first car, it was a piece of junk. Uh, most of you probably don't remember cars from the 80s. They just, they weren't perfect. They weren't beautiful. I had, I had a, uh, a 1984 Mercury Lynx. But, yeah, so one person is impressed and he's lying, because um, because the Mercury Lynx was just a Ford Escort, but the Mercury nameplate and the the 1980s Ford Escorts were just boxes. And and mine was so special, it actually it was a 1984 Mercury Lynx with the engine of a 1981 ford escort put into it by a mechanic who liked to use lots of baling twine and tape and so my car it just never ran i mean never it broke down on me more often than it ran i got stranded in so many places by my car uh just terrible story homecoming i i finally got up the nerve to ask a girl out on a date which didn't happen often for me in the first place And we we go to the football game. I'm in ROTC. So I was uh, doing color guard that night. I I get changed. I meet her in the stands. This is exciting. We go to get in my car and it won't start. We try some more and it won't start. This is an old football stadium. There are no telephones. And imagine this. There was a time when there were no cell phones. Can you imagine such a dark and turbulent era? You know what we had to do? I take my date. And we both walk down to our Latin teacher's house. Now that's a nerdy thing to say in the first place. I walk to my Latin teacher's house, but I go and I spend an hour and a half sitting in the dining room of my Latin teacher. She happened to take Latin as well. So we were nerding together, waiting for my dad to come pick us up to see if we can get my car started. It was the worst homecoming ever. Ever, ever. She never talked to me again, surprisingly. It, would just, it just didn't work out. But you know what's funny about that stupid car? It failed me over and over again. But you know what I'd do? When the weather was nice, I'd go out there and I'd wax it. I'd shine the tires. I'd vacuum the interior. I'd refresh some of the duct tape that was supposed to be holding the engine together. I almost made that car into an idol. It was a piece of junk. But I made it so important in my life. It consumed me. Now, this is to say that idolatry is so easy to fall into. And it isn't that it has to be something big and flashy and shiny. It could be something that fails you every day of your life and you turn it into an idol. So idolatry is either... Turning the God of all creation into something you can handle or turning something you can handle into a God. And so we have idolatry. And then we have adulterers. And of course, we we know what this one means. Anyone who uh, is intimate with someone who is not their spouse. This one actually falls into sexual immorality in its general scope. But Paul is very specific and says, this is a big deal. And it needs to be called out on its own. As well as the next one, males who are intimate with males. And you could argue about the Greek on this, which I think is fruitless. But this means what it says. And this has been a prohibition from all the way back in the Old Testament. That physical intimacy between two of the same sex is always prohibited. The Apostle Paul goes on to go. We might be reading this list and we're going, oh no, I'm cool. I'm still good. I'm still good. So he he hits us with some more. We've got thieves. What is a thief? Someone who takes anything that is not their own. Now, it doesn't matter how big a thing is or how valuable it is. If you take something that is not yours, you are a thief. Another confession, and I hope this one doesn't bite me. I went to a middle school that had a uh, school supply store. Anybody else? Like you could go up and there are trapper keepers and pencils and pens and, and they kept some of the cheaper stuff right at the front. And I loved to go up there when there was a crowd and just take something that was cheap. You know, it was pencil, eraser. Am I a thief? Yes. A thief. No, greedy people. What is greed? That is to desire something that is not yours. To, to, to seek fulfillment in things instead of God. Drunkards, pretty clear cut. Verbally abusive people. Wow. Verbally abusive people. When, when we talk about that, someone who speaks in such a way that it tears others down. I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of my words being destructive forces in the life of my family. How about this? Uh, swindlers. What's a swindler? Well, a thief is someone who commits a crime of opportunity. Ooh, it's available. I will take it. A swindler is something uh, someone who plans to steal. Someone who sits back and goes, All right, I'm going to do these six things so that I can trick someone else and take their stuff. And what does it say? None of these people will inherit God's kingdom. Now, you might go, well, how does this, who, do we get to sinners are welcome? If you've just told us, so many of us are sinners and we haven't, I mean, this is kind of scary. This is, what's going on here? We have to get to the next verse. And the next verse is where this makes a big turn. And it helps us to understand why sinners are welcome in our midst. Chapter 6, verse 11, very first phrase says this, and some of you used to be like this. You used to be like this. Now, what does that mean, used to be? It's in the past. This is a, supposed to be something that's gone, that's done, that's over with. Some of us used to be like all of these things in this list. and Well, not all of them, but amongst the things in this list, we could define ourselves or find ourselves on this list and say, that's me. That's my struggle. That's my lifestyle. That's my sin habit. But Paul tells us that, that this can be a thing of the past for all of us. Every one of these sin tendencies, every one of these things that separates us from God for eternity, every one of these things that keeps us out of the kingdom of God can be a used to be in our lives other places where we we see this kind of promise we see paul talking about in first timothy chapter one verse 15 about the good news of the gospel and he says this this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance in other words this saying is something you can build your life upon christ jesus came into the world to save sinners hallelujah hallelujah We just read this list, we just compared ourselves to it, and most of us would say, that's me and I need to be saved. And the Apostle Paul says this, and I am the worst of them. Now, we need to understand something about when he wrote this letter. The Apostle Paul, who was an amazing missionary, he wrote the most books in our New Testament by number, Luke the most by volume. But Paul, he established numerous churches throughout Europe and Asia. He, he's being used by God. He walks down the street and people touch him and they're, they're healed. He he touches handkerchiefs and they send them off and people get healed. He preaches so long, this bored kid falls out of a window and dies, and he prays over him and he comes back to life. That, that one's especially endearing to me. But 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 he, this man that God has used mightily, who has survived shipwrecks, who has survived floggings and, and prison time, he, he describes in Philippians that he's been naked, he's been hungry, he's been destitute, and God has still used him. He says that he's the worst sinner in the whole world. Excuse me? You were the worst sinner? And the reason he's saying that is because Paul understands, just like he does back there with the the Corinthian church, that when I'm honest about who I am apart from Jesus Christ, I am the worst of the worst of the worst. Now, some of you might go, well, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? What Paul is saying is, yeah, other people's actions have been bad. And I know that to be true. But when I look into my heart when I am introspective, when I compare myself to the holiness of God, there is no conclusion that I can come to, but I am the absolute worst that there is in this whole world. Because I can, I can look at your actions and they're bad, but I look at what goes on in my heart and mind, and it's the worst. And if I was just brave enough to do what I feel, I'd be worse than Hitler. And that's what Paul's saying. And I think that's what every honest believer should be saying. Because we understand some things about ourselves. Jesus says this. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. When you look into your heart, what do you see? When you look into the depths of yourself, are you honestly a good person? without jesus or if you were left to your own devices are you like paul pulling up out of the evil that's stored up within you and and understanding you are the worst of all sinners james expresses it this way he says if, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like someone who looking at his own face in a mirror someone who is he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror Sorry. Um, Something about being ill and that screen so far away. I was having trouble with the words. They were moving a little bit. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Now, James makes this this statement. says Somebody who looks into God's word, sees who he is, and doesn't respond in a meaningful way. Is like somebody who looks at himself in a mirror, goes away and forgets what he looked like. Now, we would think that's ludicrous. But he's literally saying, it's like somebody walking into a, a place with a mirror, looking in the mirror, and going, who's that? And somebody says, well, that's you. And you go, oh, my. And you you understand, you see yourself. He's, he's not the best looking of guys, but he'll pass. Wow. That's great. And you turn around, you walk away, you do something else in the room. You come up to the mirror and you go, whoa, who's that? He's not great looking, but I mean, he's passable. Wow. Okay. You turn around, you go do something else. You come back to the mirror. Who's that? How ludicrous is that? All of us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, once we have done so for the first time, when we come back to the mirror, who do we see? ourselves how do we know it's us because we know ourselves we understand ourselves and this is this is the whole thing is we are supposed to be as christians looking into god's word and understanding ourselves and the more we understand who we really are on the inside the more we join in with paul and say i know jesus came to save sinners and i gotta tell you what folks i'm the worst of the worst of the worst because i've seen inside my heart I've compared myself to the perfection of God's word. And there is nothing here worth celebrating. Here is what a Puritan writer, William Beveridge, what he says. I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I can't administ- cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, communion. But I sin, my very repentance needs to be repented of and the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Like Paul, William Beveridge understood everything that was from himself was so consumed by selfishness and wrongdoing that he felt that even the good works he was seeking to do in the name of Christ He had to find repentance in the midst of those and confess his sin. But here's the good news. When you really understand who you are in Christ, when you really understand salvation, here's what Paul says next. But. And I love all the buts in scripture, the the howevers, the therefores. They turn the page. They bring us to something new. But. Me, the worst of all the sinners in the world who Christ Jesus died for. But I received mercy for this very reason. Because I'm the worst, he chose to show me mercy. So that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. I am the worst sinner in the world And God saved me to show that he can save anyone. I am the top of the list. I am the absolute bottom of the barrel. I don't deserve this. And yet he saved me. As an example, to show that sinners are welcome but not sinners who are ready to stay sinners, but sinners who want something more and hunger and thirst for change. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, and you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He paints this picture then of you and I who don't deserve the kingdom of God because of ourselves but when we come to christ and submit our lives to him when we trust in him then he washes us off he removes from us all of that stain of sin and death he sanctifies us what sanctification means is he takes and he sets us apart for himself He cleans us up, and then he says, this one's mine, and I am going to use it forever. I've, I've used this example before. I've told you all, I have a favorite type of pen. These pens are sanctified unto me. And what does that mean? It means I don't let anybody else use them. You know why? Pens grow legs. Did you know that? A good pen will grow legs and disappear. Guard your pens wisely. But the the idea of sanctification is not that this this pen is perfect. It's covered in scratches. The the pencil part doesn't work very well sometimes. The eraser's pretty nubby by now, mostly because I'm imperfect. This pen is not perfect, but it's mine. And it's set apart for me. God washes us from sin when we come to Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He sets us apart as his own. And we're justified, which means he looks at us and he sees nothing but the perfection of Jesus when we walk in Christ. We are cleansed from sin, we're set apart for a special purpose, and then we're put into right relationship with God because of our faith in Christ Jesus. No longer does that old list define us, instead, as Christians, We're washed, we're sanctified, and we're justified. And why is that important? Because you're the worst sinner in the world. And so am I. And yet, God chose to save us. To tell every other sinner in this world that they too can be saved. If they'll only come to Jesus. So, to kind of conclude A statement, God saved us, the worst of sinners, to declare his love and power to all who would be saved. And so when we look at the doorway of our church, when we look at who we want to come in the door, we need to make sure we proclaim it loud and clear that sinners are welcome. But a special type of sinner is who we want to come in our door. Sinners who are tired of being sinners. And are ready to be washed and sanctified and justified and used by God. An example that I was thinking of, as many of us are familiar with the Statue of Liberty, right? We've at least seen it in a movie. At times being blown up, climbed upon, used, remodeled. The Statue of Liberty is this prominent thing in our culture and in in our, our perception. And we see the Statue of Liberty as this welcoming thing for anyone who would come to the United States and seek to be part of us. And see, this is the, the difference in how immigration has changed in the last couple of decades. We've always had an attitude of all who would come are welcome, but you must become one of us. And today, it's, hey, just come on over. <laughs> and the, the, the big difference is... There was a time where you're welcome, but, but you're welcome to change. And you're welcome to become. And you're welcome to experience what we experience. There was a, a lady, can't read the back. Man, I thought I'd be okay, but it's so far away and shiny today. Emma Lazarus wrote this poem about the Statue of Liberty called The New Colossus. And it begins with just a description. Some of us are familiar. We took literature in high school or college. We remember the the, the Colossus. There's a poem about it. This is the poem about the New Colossus. And and this is what the Statue of Liberty is declaring to everyone. Keep ancient lands your gloried pomp. Cries she, or your storied pomp cries she with silent lips in other words come here but we don't want none of your garbage but what do we want well you'd think it would say so give us your scientists give us your elite give us your wealthy people we don't want you know any of that riffraff or junk no here's how the poem goes and, and what has been the American spirit for so long give me your tired your poor Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. A lot of us, we read this and it just strikes us. Those who want to come and experience genuine freedom and life, you are welcome. Don't bring any of your self-righteous garbage into our midst. Don't tell us that you're better than us, but come and be part. And the patriots just kind of, you know, salute and go, amen. But then when it comes to church, we want to keep the riffraff out. But when we understand what Paul has told us about ourselves, about who we used to be and who we are now in Christ, it would not be inappropriate for us to put at our doorway Something similar to this. You can keep your self righteous fake faith. Listen, I don't want anybody coming up in here. Christ Himself, through His apostles, says, We don't want anybody coming up in here thinking you're better than everybody else. But come, all you sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, and males who have sex with males. All you thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, and swindlers. Come. And be these no longer. Much like the Statue of Liberty is crying out to the poor and the downtrodden and the broken. And saying, come be part of what we have because it's beautiful. As a church, understanding who we are and what God has done for us. It should be on our doorways, in our activities, in the way that we communicate. I don't care who you are today. If you're tired of who you are and scared of where that's taking you, come to church and stop being that way. Because we used to be like that. In fact, we were worse than you. But there is a God who loves and made a way for you to be saved. And I want you to, to, to come and be washed and sanctified and justified in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so my hope is that this, this year, 2024, that sounds so weird to say, right? I've been alive old enough. The, the, the earth, everything was supposed to end in 1984. Jesus was supposed to come back in 88. He was supposed to come back in 89. The world was supposed to end in 2000. It was supposed to end again in 2012. There were people in 2018 who said it was ending. Guess what? It hasn't ended yet. And so what do we do? We keep working to be faithful to what we've been told to do. Which is to go out and call in the broken and the hurting and the destitute and the people destined for hell and saying, Give that up and come be part of what we are. I hope that's what we can do in 2024. We get an attitude of no matter what your background, no matter your age, no matter your sex, that you come and you get to be part of us and you get to know what it is to be washed and justified and sanctified in Jesus and by the Spirit. Ultimately, today all i want to say to all of us is that sinners are welcome here because we're all first even as believers fighting a war against sin in our own hearts and minds but we should in no way exclude someone from walking in the door and feeling welcome and loved and accepted and encouraged to repent and turn towards jesus christ that that we should be in fact intentionally welcoming people who aren't like us who are different who are struggling with sin issues and saying remembering i used to be like that but you can be better too if you'll trust jesus sinners are welcome here i encouraged everybody last week to do something to choose one person in your life this month who's not a believer who's maybe struggling with this list of sins or even just one of these sins to choose them to pray for them and then by the end of this month whether it's just handing them a tract inviting them to church or sitting down and having coffee or a hamburger or whatever you do with them to share the gospel intentionally with them next week we'll have more resources available more tracts and tools that you can use to share the gospel but this is part of what it is to make people welcome. We've got to go out and tell them that life can be better. We've got to go out and tell them that there is an answer. Now, we, of course, we are a shining light on a hill. We are the salt of the earth. We hope to draw people to us, but sometimes we got to go out and drag them in. And this is what our year is about, is choosing people that we'll witness to, praying for them. And then sharing, because ultimately we want everyone who walks in the door to understand that they are welcome here. Not welcome to stay how you were, but welcome to be made new in Christ and to find your place in His church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. We know that on our own, none of us have a heart or a mind that is good enough to come into your presence to be part of your kingdom but you loved us so much you sent Jesus who lived and died and rose again so that all of us who confess our sins and believe on him as Lord and Savior will be washed our sin will be removed, our rebellion will be taken away, all the evil that that used to define us will no longer be our identity and will be sanctified you will lovingly set us apart for a special type of life and will be justified we'll be made right in your eyes and so those of us who've experienced that I pray that today we would be able to look at this beautiful congregation and see it as an opportunity to welcome in everyone who needs help and hope that we would no longer by accident exclude people, but that we would intentionally welcome others into our midst. We would intentionally invite the hurt and the broken and the destitute and the sin-laden into our midst because that's who we used to be. And we know the only answer is your Son, Jesus Christ. For Jesus, you are our hope. You are our salvation. May we lean on you fully this morning and declare you proudly and loudly in the world around us we pray that you would continue to bring to mind that one person that you would have us share the good news of your gospel with that we would see their face in our mind right now we would remember that their lifestyle is not as it should be that they cannot make it to heaven on their own and that we would be heartbroken and pray for them Pray that you would prepare the way for us to share the gospel. Prepare a a time that we can be honest with them about spiritual life. And then help us to be bold to share. To choose, to pray, and then to finally share. To not allow one more month to finish before we hand them a tract or invite them to church or share our testimony. So that they can hear the good news of the gospel. May this year be a year where we glorify you and we see many come to walk with you, Lord Jesus, because of the faithfulness that you've called us to. Thank you for this time and your word. Continue to speak to us and encourage us and convict us. In your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.